Well, good morning, Grace Community Church. It is good to be with you. And it is good to see many familiar faces and one or two unfamiliar faces. Uh, we sang a few moments ago. I hope you, you caught the words. It was our song of assurance. Uh, we sang the following stanza. Christ the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, O oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. That word ballast has occupied my attention for the better part of a year. It was a warm, sunny afternoon, August 10th, 1628, when the warship named the Vasa set out on its maiden voyage. It entered the water uh, in the harbor of Stockholm, Sweden, accompanied with pomp and fanfare and ceremony and began to make its way through the harbor with the band playing and the crowds watching on and about a half a mile from dock it hit its first gust of wind and the vasa keeled over the water rushed in through the gun portals and uh, this warship quickly sank to the bottom of the harbor. Why? Uh, what happened? Sweden was at war with Poland. And the king of Sweden was in a hurry to get as many warships into the water as possible. And so the builders of the Vasa, they focused on maximizing this ship's firepower. Two decks, 64 bronze cannons, sure to win any battle in which it might engage at sea. The problem is this, as they focused all their attention on maximizing the ship's firepower, they forgot to allow for the required space in the hull of the ship necessary to contain what? The ballast needed to stabilize the ship in water. And so off it's set to engage the enemy and a half mile from shore unceremoniously keeled over and sank to the bottom. I have been extremely thankful for ballast in my life this past year. We were last with you in March, right? Last year, 15 months. I have been exceedingly thankful for ballast, that stabilizing force in our lives. I have been thankful for ballast as loved ones have passed from this world into the next. I have been thankful for ballast as heroes of the faith who shall remain unnamed have fallen into scandalous sin. I have been thankful for ballast as sin has pressed hard upon the doors of my own heart. I have been thankful for ballast 
as clouds of confusion at times have hidden the sun from view. I have been thankful for ballast as dreams have evaporated like an early morning mist. I have been thankful for ballast as professing believers have devoured one another over mere trivialities. I have been thankful for ballast as friends have turned back from following Jesus because of their love for this present world. And I have been thankful for ballast as ungodliness has spread like a festering sore. And so what I want to share with you this day is the nature, the content of this ballast. It is summed up in three truths based on three verses scattered through the book of Psalms. I have written out these verses for you in the sermon notes. I have also put them on a slide, and Norm is going to bring them up on the screen behind me if he can keep up as we go through these one by one. Why I've put them in the sermon notes and why they're going to come up on the screen is because I'm using the New American Standard Version. Not because the New American Standard Version is better than the ESV, which is what most of you are using, but because I learned these verses long ago in the NASV. And there are some subtleties to that translation which really help us capture the intent of the psalmist in each of these texts. So you've got our goal, you have the text before you, and so here we now, we set off on our journey trying to lay this ballast which will serve us well as we navigate the breezes, the gale force winds of life, whatever they may be. And so here is the first truth taken from Psalm 103, verse 15, as for man. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Here the psalmist says three things about man. Number one, man flourishes quickly. It's right there in the text. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. And so I paid attention to the news back in February. I know you went through a deep freeze and it was pretty horrific by Texan standards, right? But it passed. Things got back to normal. The thaw came, you entered April, the temperatures rose, the spring rains came, and those wildflowers, oh, they came out of nowhere, right? In the midst of them all, the blue bonnets, in all of their splendor and majesty, that is man. Oh, he flourishes quickly. He enters the scene screaming and never stops screaming till he exits the scene, and he engages in a beehive of activity. But here's the second thing we must grasp from this text. As man quickly flourishes, so too he quickly fades. Again, the text. As for man, his days are as grass, 
As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth, for the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. So those blue bonnets, how long did they last this year? Two weeks? Maybe three? And there they were in all of their glory. And just as they seemed to come from nowhere, they quickly what? Went nowhere. As the temperatures rose and as the sun stood tall in the daytime sky, all of those flowers quickly faded. I mean, you look at the grass around here right now. It's, it's apocalyptic, really, how green it is. Quite shocked by all the rain, again, by Texan standards. And it's beautiful and it's lush. But you know it's coming. You know it's coming. That string of 40, 50, 60 days in a row, not a cloud in sight. And the temperatures climb into the high 90s, perhaps even the triple digits. And what happens to that grass? Oh, it is quickly scorched, burnt, and browned. Oh, that is man. Oh, he quickly flourishes and he quickly fades. Thomas Brooks, the old English Puritan, he put it succinctly. And he put it perfectly when he said, man's life, oh, man's life is but the shadow of smoke. The shadow of smoke. We quickly flourish and we quickly fade. It is why Seth named his son what? Enosh. Not very flattering. What does it mean? Frail. Mortal. Why? He understood a fundamental truth, reality. We are but dust. And we are here today. And my friend, we are gone tomorrow. And here is the third thing the psalmist declares in our text. As man quickly flourishes, as man quickly fades, so too man is quickly forgotten. It's the text, folks. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it. No more. And so a few weeks ago, I was hunting for, oh, a document, a piece of paper, a passport. I don't know what it was, but we have two or three go-to places in the house. You're probably not unlike us. Two or three go-to places where you store things. And I was rummaging through this box looking for whatever it was, this document that I needed to get my hands on. And there was this old, worn, weathered folder and I said, what is that? Flipped it open, and 20 pages more or less fell out. And these are photocopies of my ancestors on my father's side, beginning with my great-grandfather, going back maybe five generations, photocopies of birth certificates, baptism certificates, marriage certificates, death certificates. That's all I got. That's it. 20 pieces of paper representative of generations here today gone tomorrow and we are quickly forgotten oh what does Moses declare he puts it so well the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 and they are soon gone 
back in Cambridge, we have some lovely neighbors on either side of us. And so here our home stands, and a home over here, and another home here. And despite all of the restrictions and the shutdowns and everything else, we've been able to engage with our neighbors quite well. Lots of conversations, and uh, very friendly, very personable. And over here, raised Lutheran. Over here, raised Roman Catholic. But neither of them have darkened the door of a church since their teenage years. And so as we've engaged them in conversation, you know, you try to drop that nugget here or there, that question that you hope will stir some sort of meaningful discussion beyond the weather and the shutdown and COVID and everything else, something of eternal consequence. And we've even been able to give them books, uh, books for them to read, and we know they've read them because they've well, they've told us they've read them. I guess we don't really know for certain they've read them, but they've assured us they've read them. But every attempt to engage them in some sort of conversation of eternal consequence, the response is always the same. I'm not religious. I'm not religious. They're like the path in the parable of the sower. The sower goes out to sow. And he spreads the word of God. That's the seed. And as that seed falls, some of it lands on the pathway. And the pathway, it's impenetrable, right? It cannot enter in. And as a result, the birds of the air come and snatch it away. And the Lord Jesus says, so too it is with many who listen. So too it is with many who hear. They, 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 they do audibly hear. And cognitively, yes, they kind of process it, but they really don't understand. They never understand. And it is quickly snatched away by the devil himself. And, and this, this is the feeling I get as we engage our neighbors in conversation and seek to speak of eternal realities that is the seed falling on the pathway. And I'm convinced the starting point is this, that in their mind, in their reckoning, they never deal with this undeniable reality, absolute certainty. Death is knocking at the door. And yes, man's years are 70. You're particularly healthy. You might make it to 80. You might make it to 90. But they are soon gone. And so what does Moses pray? Oh, Lord, help us to do what? Help us to count our days. Help us to number them one by one. Why? So that we might get a heart of wisdom. You want ballast in your life? My friend, that is the starting point. You build on it with the second truth. It takes us to Psalm 18, verse 30. And notice here what the psalmist declares. As for God, and so we've spoken of man and observed three truths or realities concerning man. We now go heavenward and we fix our gaze upon the Almighty. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of Jehovah is tried. He is a shield unto all them that take refuge in him. And here the psalmist makes three affirmations concerning God. Here is the first. His way is perfect. What is his way? The psalmist is referring to God's providential dealings 
with his people. God's providential dealings with his people. His ways among us and with us. Three things we must grasp concerning God's way with his people. The first is this. His providential dealings are absolute. Absolute. At the end of Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul makes that perfectly clear. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And so you enter that art gallery. And there in the art gallery, you behold that beautiful sculpture. And as you approach that sculpture, you ask a very simple question. Why? Why does this thing exist? Why is this thing here? And your answer is threefold. Your first answer is this. Well, there's an efficient cause. There is a sculptor. A sculpture requires a sculptor, a man or woman who actually made this thing. Secondly, it requires some sort of physical substance. Perhaps it's made of wood. Perhaps it's made of stone. Perhaps it's made of marble. It required tools. There you have the instrumental cause. And then you have, thirdly, the final cause. The sculptor fashioned that sculpture. Why? Perhaps for his own satisfaction, or maybe he was commissioned to do so and is paid handsomely for it. But there you have the efficient cause, you have the instrumental cause, and you have the final cause. Go back with me to Romans chapter 11. For from him there is the efficient cause. Through him, there is the instrumental cause. And to him, there is the final cause. His glory are all things. Meaning what? God's providential dealings with his people. His way is absolute. It encompasses everything. And not only is it absolute, but it is inscrutable. Paul says that too at the end of Romans chapter 11. He uses that very word. He tells us God's ways are inscrutable. Meaning what? No matter how hard we try and no matter how much we convince ourselves we can figure it out, we can't figure it out. It is the finite seeking in vain to grasp the infinite his ways are ultimately unfathomable. His ways among us are inscrutable. And so last Friday, we arrived at DFW. Two and a half hour flight, followed by what? The half hour taxi to the terminal. I'd forgotten all about that. That they have the runways, I don't know, 50 miles away from the terminal. And you have your flight, you're only halfway there. Then you have to sit there on the plane waiting to get to the actual terminal so you can get off the plane. And this, was, this took unusually long. No, no joke, it was at least 30 minutes. And there I was sitting in an aisle seat. I couldn't see a thing. Everyone else was rubbernecking, looking out the windows, trying to figure out what was going on. But it seemed like we just, I don't know, went around DFW three or four times before we could finally dock. But I had this absolute certainty as to what? Despite the fact that I had no clue what was going on. The pilot knew what was going on. Even more to the point, that man, that woman in the air traffic control tower knew exactly what was going on. As they enjoyed that view of the airport in its entirety, every plane taxiing out to take off 
Every plane taxiing in so the people could disembark. Every plane in the air. So what appeared to me to be an absolutely inexplicable, frustrating experience, I had this certainty that there was somebody sitting somewhere who knew exactly what was going on. Oh, my friend, that is a pitiful illustration of God's absolute sovereignty over all things. His providential dealings with his people are absolute. And his providential dealings with his people, despite the fact that we do not like to hear this, and uh, we oftentimes beat ourselves up trying to unravel it and discern it in the final analysis, his providential dealings with his people are inscrutable. And then thirdly, it brings us right back to his point, our point. His providential dealings, his way with his people, they are, they are perfect. The Lord is righteous in, righteous in all his ways. Now, please, I like to say, get this and get it good. Get this and get it good. The psalmist does not say his way, God's way with his people is easy. That is not what he says. Nowhere does he say such a thing. The psalmist does not say that God's way with his people is enjoyable. God does not say, the psalmist does not say that God's way with his people is pleasurable. The psalmist says, the psalmist declares, the psalmist affirms that God's way with his people is perfect. His way with Job was perfect as Job sat there scraping the boils from his very flesh. Do you believe that? Really? Do you believe that? God's way with Joseph was perfect as he was unjustly and falsely accused and imprisoned. God's way with Naomi was perfect as she stood next to the graves containing the bodies of her husband and two sons. Oh, God's way with David was perfect as he's sneaking out the back door of Jerusalem, fleeing from his own flesh and blood, Absalom, who was approaching with an invading army. God's way with his people, his providential dealings. Oh, my friends, they are perfect. But there is something else the psalmist affirms concerning God in our text. It is this. His word is tried. The word of Jehovah, Jehovah, the great I am, the immutable God, therefore the faithful God, therefore his word is unchangeable. His word is immutable. His promises are unfailing and his word is tested and his word is tried. This past winter, all the hockey rinks were shut down. So you couldn't get out for a good skate. And so you might have heard, we're, we're, we're getting a son-in-law added to our family at some point from now, a couple of months from now, and he lives, he lives on this little piece of property with a pond on it, and he uh, told us that the pond was frozen, and we should all come over for a skate some Sunday afternoon, right? 
Well, I, I've skated on ponds and creeks in the, in the past. This wasn't my first rodeo. See how I threw that in there? Oh, my first rodeo. So we showed up to that pond, and what did I do? I took an inordinate amount of time doing up my skates. Waiting for what? For him to get out there. <laughs> I love him, but waiting for him to get out there. Do a little figure eight or whatever to show me what? That the ice was tried. The ice was tested. And therefore, I could put my full weight on that ice, confidently knowing what? That it could sustain me and hold me up. That is the psalmist's point here. God's word is tried. It was tried in the life of Job. Read the narrative. It was tried in the life of Joseph and Naomi and David and every other Old Testament saints. It's there for our encouragement and the strengthening of our faith. His promises have never failed. Joshua, as the God, as the, as, as the children of Israel have entered the land, and Joshua is passing from view, God declares, you know in your hearts and souls that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord God promised concerning you. It is tried, it is tested, it is unfailing, it is unwavering. And therefore we can plant both feet firmly upon God's word, taking hold of his promises. And because his way is perfect, and because his word is tried, it leads to a third thing the psalmist says concerning God in Psalm 1830. It is this, he is a shield. Look at the verse in its entirety. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of Jehovah is tried. Ergo, he is a shield unto all them that take refuge in him. Why must we take refuge in him? It takes us back to our previous verse. As for man. His days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. It is the great undeniable human predicament, death. And this equally undeniable reality that it is the wages of sin that is death. You see, there is a problem. And that problem is summed up in that word sin. I am not even speaking of our sins. I am not speaking in the first instance of our trespasses or our transgressions. I am not speaking of those things which we do or we fail to do that violate God's law. I am speaking of sin. This basic fundamental reality that plagues human existence and human reality at scripture at times scripture refers to it as iniquity that which has invaded our lives that which has taken hold in our hearts darkening corrupting everything so a couple of years when we took when we took possession of our house up there in cambridge i did a little painting i don't know maybe it was blue and then I put that paintbrush away. I cleaned it first, but didn't do a very good job at cleaning it. I was being a bit lazy, I admit it. And then a few months later, I had another paint job, white, white trim. 
and I just kind of grabbed that brush, and I saw the dried blue paint on there, but oh, well, it won't matter. Oh, it mattered. <laughs> right? Three brush strokes in, what's happened to that dry blue paint? It's no longer dry blue paint, it is what? Wet blue paint. And not only has it now tainted the brush, I've dipped it in the entire can of paint. It has now tainted and ruined the entire can. That is sin, my friend. That is the problem. Yes, what you have done in life, what you have failed to do in life, big problem. But it's only, it's really only the demonstration of this far deeper, more significant reality problem, which is indwelling sin. Oh, but just as we wrestle with this problem, there is what? A solution. And God's word points us away from ourselves, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul celebrates, for example, in Galatians chapter 4, that in the fullness of time, and so in accordance with God's eternal decrees, in accordance with God's eternal plan to glorify himself and magnify his grace in particular, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, Born of a woman. That's the incarnation. Born under the law. Under the curse. The wages of sin is death. Born under that curse. Born under the law. That he might redeem those who were languishing under the law. And not only redeem them, but grant them what? Adoption as sons. And because we have received adoption as sons, the Father has sent out the Spirit into our hearts by whom we now cry what? Abba, Father. And so there is a problem, but there is a glorious remedy. And it behooves us, does it not? To cry out to this God. And that cry is summarized beautifully in Psalm 51 verse 7. From the lips of King David himself. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Oh just wash me Lord. This God who abounds in loving kindness. This God who is exceedingly merciful. This God who has made full and final satisfaction for the sin problem upon Calvary's cross. Oh, wonder of wonders that I can turn to this God and I can simply utter these words. Wash me. Just wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Thomas Watson put it beautifully. God is more willing to pardon than punish. You believe that one? God is more willing to pardon than punish. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Right? We're all familiar with that one, surely. And off he went, and he squandered everything, lived as a degenerate. And then he comes to his senses while he's in the pigsty, in the muck and the mire. And he decides to what? Head for home. Where's his father? He's on the front porch. What's he do on the front porch? He's looking and he's waiting. And as soon as he spies that young man coming miles off, what does he do? Oh, he waits for him to get close so that he can grovel before him. No. He waits for him to come back so that he can prove himself. No. He waits for him to clean up his act and get his life together. 
And what does he do? He makes straight for him. Before the son even gets close to the house and before the son can utter a word, as soon as the father sees his son approaching, he runs to him. Oh, my friends, God is more willing to pardon than to punish. And so, yes, there is a problem. We know that. And yes, there is a glorious remedy, praise God. And yes, there is a very suitable cry, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And there is a glorious promise by God's power. Now we are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Go back to the psalm. He is a shield unto all them that take refuge in him. A shield from sin. A shield from the curse. A shield from death itself. Judgment. He is a shield that surrounds us. And by his glorious infinite power and in accordance with his providential dealings with us, he keeps us. And he guards us. And he sustains us. So that everything goes well in the present. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Here is the third truth. Remember, ballast we're building. Yes, as for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Yes, amen, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of Jehovah is tried. He is a shield unto all them that take refuge in him. And now our third text, as for me, as for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with beholding thy form. And here the psalmist says three things about himself. First is this, I shall awake. Death is not the end. A glorious day is coming. The trumpet blast shall sound. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself shall descend with a shout. And he will gather together the scattered molecules of my body. And fashion them into the image and the likeness of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the corruptible will put on finally incorruptible, I shall awake. Secondly, I shall behold God's face in righteousness. You've gone through the Beatitudes recently on Wednesday nights, haven't you? So help me out here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who Mourn. They recognize they're poor in spirit. They recognize they have nothing to endear themselves to God. Therefore, they mourn. They grieve. Well, they are blessed. Why? For they shall be comforted. And blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Why? Because they become meek. And they recognize that anything short of God's damnation is a mercy. Well, they are blessed because they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall be mercied by God. And blessed are the pure in heart. Why? What is it? For they shall see 
God. The Beatitudes. That is why this sight of God is called the beatific vision. The blessed vision. It is not a vision of God in his resplendent glory. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. The finite cannot grasp the infinite. We will see the fullness of God in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what will it lead to? Oh, the third truth the psalmist celebrates in our text. I shall be satisfied. Satisfaction. You know what that is. I know you do. You know what the psalmist is talking about there. It's when you're up at six in the morning and you're sitting out back with that first cup of coffee and the sun is just breaking on the horizon. Are you with me? You know it. It's Christmas time when it is a cool night. It's going to be a frosty one. And you're sitting there beside a roaring fire. It's after you've enjoyed a great meal and Gary Phillips is telling stories. <laughs> I'm not joking. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? There is something you feel. There is something you experience that escapes words. It is fleeting. But if I, if, if, if I were forced, and I'm, I'm going to attempt to do it now, if we're forced to try to articulate what is going on in those fleeting moments, it is simply this. We have this overwhelming sense that all is right in the universe. And then it is gone. Those are signposts, my friend. Those are divine signposts. That is God himself through the created order declaring to us if we care to listen that there is much more to this world. There is much more to this human experience. We are made for another and we are made for fellowship and communion with God himself. I will awake. I will behold his face in righteousness. And I will be satisfied as sin is completely vanquished, as worry and anxiety dissipate from view, as fears completely flee from my presence and experience. And I behold the wonder of wonders, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who loved me, and gave himself up for me. My friends, that is ballast. As for man, be clear on it. As for God, revel in it. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with beholding thy form. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, O oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary, this my ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed.
Oh, our Heavenly Father, impress these truths deep within our hearts, we pray. May it be for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. May it be for the doing and performing of your will in our lives. And may it resound to your eternal glory. In the matchless name of Christ, we ask it. Amen.